Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Uh, we're coming to you today with uh, uh, a guest that you've never heard before, an old uh, friend of mine from college who actually is in a profession that I think a lot of us are going to have are going to be interested in what he has to say. Firstly, I have some clarifications to make from some previous things that we're, we're talking about. Um, like New York Times has a first thing they put in their uh, newspaper is corrections from the past week. So these are some clarifications. The num uh, re regarding Madiki Fiqh, first of all, the Ta'zir can be, there's no limit in Madiki Fiqh on Ta'zir. I previously had said that there is a limit on Ta'zir, uh, but there is uh, to 10. I had read that from a reliable source, but they're actually, in Maliki Fiqh at least, there is no limit. So what I had cited before, just so that you don't think that it's absolute or it's pertaining to Maliki Fiqh, it's an opinion uh, of opinion. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, for those who are uh, listening to the Fiqh, that much blood does not negate wudu at all in Maliki Fiqh. Only what, uh, what I actually confuse it with is much insect blood or guts that gets on your body. That's requires taharatul uh, khab. That's considered requires taharatul khaba. So a little bit of insect here and there is not a problem, uh, but a lot, for whatever reason that happens, who knows, uh, would require you to wash it off before um, making salah. It had nothing to do with wudu though. Third thing is that masajid. I had previously said that because I had asked the sheikh uh, in Mal in Maliki fiqh. If someone is in a rented space, like a musalla, can do do the the blessings of the prayer apply? He said yes, a hundred percent. So he said so that there really is there there's not a difference between that and the masjid. He said no. He said I said well, what about the entrance and exit of people? For example, we know that menstruating women won't enter the masjid in the dominant opinion, right? Uh, he said it, all that applies too to the rented space. He, he, he said exactly the way the rented masjid is treated, the musalla that the Muslims take for prayer should also be treated. So, but that shouldn't be confused with that. A musalla is a masjid, right? Because a musalla is going to be owned by someone and it's going to be private property of someone. When we use it for prayer, we'll treat it like that, okay, uh, like a masjid, but it still will not be a masjid. It could be changed, etc. So the definition of a masjid requires that it be an endowed space because that's the only way to remove it from being private property. And you can't be private property and the community's property at the same time. The whole idea of a masjid is that it's no one's property, right? Not even like the community's property. If it's like for the community services, but it's not even owned uh, by the community. All right. So today's so those are three clarifications uh, just to make sure that we got our uh, fiqh down right. Anyone who misunderstood, or if I had not been clear about it, or been uh, you know, citing something uh, and making it seem as if it was uh, Maliki Fiqh, wasn't. So now we have today a guest. His name is Dr. Arshad Siddiqui. He's a psychiatrist. He's been a psychiatrist for what, like seven years now? Nine years. Nine years. Okay. So tell us exactly. Uh, first thing. First things first. I don't know in England what they use for this term. Uh, do they use the term uh, psychiatrist or what? But tell us the difference between psychologist and psychiatrist. I mean, I know the difference, but the audience might not know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So the difference, actually, it's a very common question that I get. Um, the difference is in the training. Uh, the psychiatrist comes from a medical background, does a 
full uh, stint in medical school and does a residency training in psychiatry. Um, so thus a psychiatrist has the training to prescribe medications and really look at the full uh, biological, psychological, and sociological approach to a patient. Uh, psychologist training comes from a different point of view, but we do treat similar conditions. Okay, so a psychologist is more almost like um, the study of a mind from a liberal arts, like a type of book perspective, not a patient perspective, not a clinical perspective. You can have clinical psychologists as well, but their training, you're absolutely right, they come from a liberal arts perspective. Okay, so you, you have psychiatrists, psychologists, and clinical psychologists. So that's clinical psychologists, I would guess, is halfway, going someone who went halfway on the subject. Um, it's like halfway between psychiatrists and psychologists. Like he has clinical training, but he can't prescribe medicines. Yes. Okay. And what is he doing? What is it? The psychiatrist, you see patients like a doctor and you go to the hospital. Yes. A psychologist, what? Writes books, teaches classes. And, and they also will get training in therapy and will be able to apply a lot of different types of uh, therapeutic approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. And they will be well... Uh, well-educated in those approaches. Okay. Uh, most likely better than a psychiatrist, actually, in the therapy, uh, oh. in different types of therapies, yeah. And a clinical psychologist will do what? They'll, they'll be an expert in applying those skills to actually seeing patients uh, in an office or at a bedside, um, and uh, their expertise will be in applying those tools specifically to patients. The difference being that a psychiatrist can actually uh, add the benefit of medications uh, to the whole package. To the whole package yes. Now let's talk about the epistemology and cosmology and epistemology of the study of psychiatry. Because this is for you as a Muslim, Jews maybe and Christians might have the same concept. So the default, the cosmology of a, psychi uh, a psychiatry school does not admit the existence of a soul. Right or wrong? Different approaches. Um, you know, they certainly don't comment on this in medical school. Yeah. Whether or not there's an existence of the soul. Um, because I, I think it's an area where a lot of... You can't scientifically, like, you would only take it on belief. And, and right? absolutely. And so a lot of what we learn in medical school and in residencies now is something that needs to be evidence-based on things can that can be tested yeah. in a large-scale study and proven so that the large majority of the psychiatry community will accept it. So that's how it's presented to us. Yeah. Uh, but there are actually people uh, in the Jewish faith and the Christian faith that are psychiatrists that focus specifically on the approach using theology yeah. uh, in their practice. And that's really up to the individual. Because uh, here is where there's an overlap between psychology and metaphysics the overlap is in that in many of the th the issues i mean we have we have a lot i mean people talk about this in popular parlance all the time that sicknesses are not always something chemical it could be something that is unseen in your head that's going on like a belief right like a belief about yourself so in that in that respect there's that unscientific element in it right and you feel a lot of a lot of religious books, and I have a couple of books upstairs, right? All on uh, attempts to show that they've been able to cure 
what psychiatrists have not been able to cure by their recitation. Christians and Jews and Muslims, mainly Christians and Muslims, because Jews aren't so much about the soul element of things as Christians are. And Muslims, we have ruqya and we have these other things, right? And we also have attempts to explain things by jinn, sometimes true and false, right? Um, so much, so relative. I can understand that uh, a school or any society that doesn't necessarily have a religion is not going to admit any of that, right? So I, I, I can understand it. Of course, it is a bias. It's a bias of believing that there is no um, revelatory uh, truth or revealed truth. So how do you as a psychiatrist, like, have how have you navigated that? Have you, you know, come across these types of tensions or? It's, it's ironic because so many of the delusions that patients will come in with are religious based. Oh. Um, so, so that aspect of things has been kind of on the job learning with me actually taking these issues to my uh, mentors who are, you know, just uh, secular mentors at that point, just in psychiatry. And uh, they, they don't have that much of an explanation. Um, so it, I found myself in situations where um, in seeing a patient, I will recite Surah Al-Fatiha prior to starting my session with them because uh, I think things are so, things can't be explained all the time and that's completely okay. Yeah. And once you accept that, then you can truly treat the patient. And so, so, so that's, that's where I come to it from. So many delusions involve patients' relationships with God, and angels, and, um, and, and their role in things, that you, it can't be ignored. So, so let's talk some statistics. I remember doing uh, sociology, one of the first study we've ever, we ever studied in sociology, okay? I was really interested in how human beings work, and that a human being is basically nothing without each other. You have to have others. So I study sociology. Um, my dad allowed me to study the liberal arts as long as I took a terminal degree, in other words, a PhD. That was our deal, right? Uh, I went, most of our friends went the route of uh, doctors, lawyers, and engineers, right? IT. You actually, similar to me, you went a route of medicine that is not normal for, um, uh, for us immigrant kids, kids of immigrants. Because it just wasn't the norm. So you, I think you're the only one who went into psychiatry, right? There's a few others now, yes. Yeah. And they've all kind of faced the same questions that I did from the older generation. Well, why'd you go into that? Yeah. Should have been a cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rehana? Rehana, come here for a second. Number one, I don't need you not to make that noise. It's coming in here. Number two, go upstairs and get me the Mac cord. The white cord. Upstairs. Look around. Upstairs. But don't make noise. Go up the stairs slowly. It's our first edit. 11 to 11.40. I just write the times in edit. Actually, you know what? There's a trick. Um, because you see the sound waves. So the trick is just to make a loud noise. And then you could drive to see where it is. So what, the first study that we studied in uh, psych, uh, uh, sociology was at, uh, M, I think it was Emil Durkheim. He did this study on suicide, right? And 
he basically his conclusion of the study was that the more Catholic the country was, right, the less suicide it had. He, the more Protestant and modernized a, a country was, the more suicide it had. He's trying to basically assess mental health and what's the most objective way to study it is through suicide statistics. And then he said his commentary was that in Muslim countries, which he didn't really study thoroughly, but he did enough to make like a comment, it's almost, it was almost non-existent in his time. So let's talk about statistics because when we talk about that fuzzy area and that tension between revealed knowledge and the big one, revealed knowledge, and which you only have to take on faith, right? The idea that a holy book and its recitations will actually benefit you, that you take on faith. Or um, scientific knowledge, that tension. This statistic is a big deal because he's trying to basically show that there's something going on with these Catholics that they have and that was lost by the Protestants. Uh, so talk to us about that. Did, did, did that ever come up? Like the idea that these big families with these beliefs, right, that they have, that these warm feeling prayers that, you know, make you feel all warm and, and, and feel that the universe is taken care of and all that stuff. Like how does that impact to people's mental health? So it's interesting. It's a part of our suicide assessment to assess for what a patient's sense of belonging is. Mm whether it's belonging to family or belonging to faith. Yeah. Are they isolating or not? And what I've seen is that when you have patients that have a sense of greater belonging and responsibility to a greater body, that is a protective factor. Mm -hmm. That means that this person is going somewhere more often than not seeing other people who are not only checking in on them, but also they are checking in on each other. Mm -hmm. So that works as a protective factor because you have a sense of responsibility of the community and the individual to the community. And one of the things about what, when you said the word responsibility, uh, I think that responsibility, well, thinking about yourself, right, is one of those things that really gets you, you know, off. When you think about yourself a lot, you get off. When you're thinking about others or thinking about something external to yourself is when people are the most happy, right? And the idea of responsibility was, you know, when you said that, it's sort of a big deal because when you have young ones, right, and you have a community and you have threats to that community, there's no time to think about yourself, right? So involvement with a, with a community and also beliefs, family and community, and also beliefs about what's actually right and what's actually wrong, having that makes you feel like there's something I got to take care of and there's a threat of something trying to destroy that those generations tend to be completely immersed in something out bigger than themselves and outside other than themselves. And I like to think about the contrast between the children of Holocaust survivors, right? And that whole generation and their children and grandchildren. So the children of Holocaust survivors, to me, that is probably the most the the best generation uh, you, you, in, in general of people in terms of achievement, right? I mean, they were so driven to make sure that their spot in the world was established. 
and that they were not messed with again, right? Like it's it's like so driven everywhere and in every field they excelled past everyone. So you fast forward though, fast forward half a century and you have what's called the Long Island syndrome, Long Island Jew syndrome, where they, it's you're now two generations of immense success. That third generation now is coming up with no concept of hardship, no concepts of difficulty, and it's completely selfish and doesn't even care about Israel, right? So this idea of responsibility that you said uh, was a huge is a huge deal, and also. Do you get a lot of, uh, I know you're not allowed to talk about your patients, but maybe you're allowed to say something in general. Do you get a lot of people who come in the first year of retirement? Oh, so many. Is, Absolutely. Is it true that that's the most dangerous year in a man's life, the year he retires? Uh, both men and women, actually. Um, when you're dealing with the older population. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're dealing with a lot of loss of identity because, A, they most likely have left their jobs recently. Yeah. And B, their children have most likely moved away or are doing their own things and are busy. And then many of their peers have started to either pass away or are not as alert as they used to be. So they're not getting that peer interaction as well. So absolutely, there's a huge sense and theme of loss That's, in that post-retirement population. Yeah, and you, I mean, you would think it's the opposite. But subhanAllah, in the masjid life though, right? Seeing the elderly, Rahan, I need you to go upstairs. You're making too much noise. Put that out. When I look at the elderly in the uh, in the masajid, I actually try to take a lesson from it. And I believe that the whole idea of mixing ages is really important. Mixing up ages is so critical because number one, it keeps young people, older people, young in a sense. Like you're in touch and you have an idea and you have to have an idea of what's going on among the youth. So you don't get disconnected with the youth. There's no sense of um, being out of touch, like they say, right? You can't be out of touch. If you want to interact with the person in front of you, with the youth in front of you, you have to sort of learn and have the humility to get in touch with what's going on. And out of touch syndrome is really bad, right? When the whole society's moved on and you're like, it's past you. So at least in some – that's going to happen, but in some respects, you're still connected with youth. But I also look at the elderly, and I see, uh, subhanAllah, uh, the healthiest of the elderly are not those necessarily who had the best uh, careers in life. Right? We're, we're driven for these careers. The healthiest of the elderly turn out to be the ones who, number one, had big families, right? families period, but bigger was better, right? For the simple reason that there are so many grandkids, there's a nonstop flow of human interaction, literally nonstop. It's not like, oh, this Sunday we'll see the grandkids. No, it's nonstop. At any given moment, someone's having an issue, right? Good, bad, or otherwise. Someone's needing help. Someone had a fender bender. Someone's car is in the shop, right? Very busy. And secondly, I found that the more humble the person was, right, the more things that they could do, right? The more humble the elderly, the older person, the more involved that they're willing to be. Whereas the ones who had great careers, 
they tended to be like, um, no, I'm not showing up at that event, right? Or I'm not going to that person's. If he's there, I'm not going, right? Or that um, I'm not going to sit there listening to some person, young person talk, right? So they won't go out to stuff. So I found those two factors for uh, the elderly to be the most important. And the ones who had smaller families, they struggled a lot. They're very lonely. So if you, the ones who had many kids, subhanAllah, their life is just, even if they're not involved, even though they're not actually doing anything, just the idea that the house is buzzing. You're hearing stuff. You're seeing people's name, hearing their names. You're remembering who they were. So all that, I think, when it comes to this analysis or this uh, comparison between these, I guess you could say, pre-industrial and Catholic families uh, or nations, and then by extension, the Muslims have very similar habits. Right? They were pre-industrial. They came. They got updated later. Uh, they caught up. Well, I, I don't even know if you could say they caught up. Right? Uh, maybe individuals, but society's not. And they also had these big families, right, with uh, a place of worship, versus these career-driven, industrialized, Protestant, less worshipful, less colorful um, places of worship. And smaller families, right? I mean, these are the these are huge points. And these things, there is no medicine for that, right? I, I think there's the idea of seeing faces. You need to see people to have mm -hmm. a sense of belonging. You can't get that from being behind a screen. You can't get that from the telephone. Uh, the idea of you, you speak about people coming in and out of the house. You're seeing them, and and. That's, that in itself is heartwarming. Whether or not they're crying or they're happy, that's that's a part of life. Yeah. And and you're a part of it. You're a part of something bigger. Yeah. So so these fake communities that are online with these, uh, or, or, or even these apps that make you feel like you're a part of a chat room all the time, that in my opinion, that is fake interactions because yeah. you're still siloed. And, and, and I think when you, if you look at those communities, the Protestant com communities that you're speaking talking about, they were probably more siloed. They were probably doing things individually more rather than in a group. Um, and, and, and that's probably relates directly to yeah. the degree of happiness and the suicide rates. And I came across um, in, in England, you know, that they have a, 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 um, a position now, a division inside the government, a ministry to tackle this issue of loneliness. And I've always felt that that's a mistake. Like you can't, that's not the right way to do it, right? Loneliness and and uh, being an loneliness versus togetherness is not a function of people trying to be together. It's a function of people having a shared purpose, right? Then togetherness comes afterwards, right? So uh, even if that togetherness is superficial, it still benefits, right? I mean, if we were all stuck together because the power went out, that's not like a purpose of life. But here we are together. It does have a benefit. We're all unified in getting back, uh, getting what we need. Like Sandy was great. Hurricane Sandy was awesome, right? There are people, everyone was sleeping over everyone's house. I felt like it was actually a blessing. Like we were, we were sleeping over people's house that we would have never, ever imagined, right, to do. We were, we were interacting with people at degrees of intimacy that would have never happened. So likewise in sports, which is a silly thing, but people feel togetherness, right? Team members, togetherness to, to do this artificial thing, right? Which is like win a championship. The fans too. So 
I felt it was a mistake for the minister for England to actually focus on the issue of loneliness because if you get a whole bunch of people in a room, but you don't give them a sense of purpose, right? It's sort of pointless. As like you said, and and like you said, these things with uh, the computer. But the one thing I found about uh, Muslims, and I also see this with Catholics and evangelicals too, is that and and I'll, any other groups with purpose, is that the when the internet becomes a means to meeting up in person, right? Then it's really beneficial. Absolutely. So it's more the function of if the these social environments, these online environments, are don't connect people physically, then they're useless. Right? Absolutely. If they connect people physically, like I can't understand talking to someone online for years and like never wanting to see their face. It's the weirdest thing. It's not natural. It's not natural no. at all. I yeah. So I I remember me uh, to uh, going online and then having that first experience where I actually met uh, was talking to people online for years and then meeting them right and then that the physical meeting becomes the primary relationship the online becomes like secondary like you would never say certain things to someone that you you plan to meet or have met online uh physically that you would say online so that's one of the things now retirement though i'm surprised and this is maybe something that you counsel your patients with i'm really surprised that some people actually retire by going working full-time and then suddenly retiring like how could there how is that a good practice it should really be gradual such that like you start coming in for half a day and then you come in for three days a week right and then you actually just even if you're you actually just pop in you know on events like it really should be gradual i'm really shocked to see that it's still a practice in some businesses and some uh industries where people actually retire in full. It's interesting. I have a, I've had a lot of patients who they're retired, they'll come to me, and one of the things as part of their treatment plan going forward is to find something else to do on a daily basis, whether it's a part-time job or volunteering, and they realize that after they've actually already left their job. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's for financial reasons. People just want to be comfortable and retire and not have to go somewhere. And then once that need to have to go somewhere goes away yeah. and you realize you want to go somewhere. It's a myth. The idea that there's nothing to do is a myth. The, the idea that there's nothing, I have nothing to do, right, is only good for like an hour, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's only good for like, um, it's going to it's gonna fade in 24 hours, right? The feeling is going to fade. You're going to go crazy. And uh, fleeing from work, like the idea of being rich to flee from work, is one of the biggest myths that people fall into. Do you get, how about wealth related stuff? Tell me about the wealth related sicknesses, like so cases that you get. It's interesting. So the suicide rates over the last 50 some odd years have been directly correlated to people's sense of loss of wealth. Mm. Um, like so, 2008. Yes, absolutely. During that crisis, suicide rates were higher. During the Great Depression, suicide rates were very high. Mm. Um, people have, correlated their level of happiness to their wealth. But I, I, I don't think there's any study out there that says that people are healthier when they're richer. Yeah. Uh, it's just a yeah. sense of it's a comfort. It's a mental thing. Yes, absolutely. And it's also an image thing for guys. Like, for example, I mean, uh, no, there's no guy wants to his wife to look at him and say, like, to judge him on his wealth, right? This guy's poor. And then she's looking at the next guy, next woman, and her husband's like taking care of her. It's like, 
that's a mental thing, but it also is a sense of community belief that human beings are not valued by their wealth. They're, they're valued by work ethic, like effort, right? Um, maybe knowing a skill. I mean, that's something that you could do. Ultimately, wealth is something that's totally not in our hands. I mean, you could learn as many skills as you want, but wealth is really not something in people's hands. So I think it's important that the whole community has a belief about wealth. That's why I talk about that a lot on Jama Khutbas, that, uh, that because if you yourself know that the value of a human being is not wealth, but your kids don't know that, and your wife doesn't know that, and your father-in-law doesn't know that, and your mother-in-law doesn't know that, and the people you interact with every day judge you by wealth, right? It's not going to work. Your belief is not going to, it's going to be, you're, 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 you'll be mentally and emotionally messed up if everyone's judging you by wealth, despite the fact that you know that a man is not built by wealth. So that's why I think it's very important for whole communities to believe that wealth is not the hallmark, right? Wealth and poverty can come and go. Absolutely. And it's a person's khuluq, their deen, and, and you can't help, uh, you, you can't harp on this enough. You can't emphasize this and repeat it enough because human beings immediately, they look at someone and wonder, how's he going to survive? This guy doesn't have any money, right? How is he going to survive in the future? How is he going to send kids to college on this income, right? Like you can't help but repeating, asking yourself those questions and judging a person based on that, right? Like get up and do something. But you really have to, to make sure that your uh, your mi'yar or your standard is always going back to a, a better standard than that, a higher standard where wealth is sort of just a secondary description of someone, you know? So I, I, I'm surprised because I thought that you would get a lot of patients who got something went up upstairs, something went up wrong upstairs after they got really wealthy. Or maybe it's not even getting wealthy. It's gradual wealth or sudden wealth. Have you come across anything like that? You mean the difference between people who get sudden wealth versus gradual, gradual wealth. wealth? Yeah, I think so. It, it all boils down to a self, sense of self-worth. Right. Mm. If you have a healthy sense of self-worth where you earn your living over the course of your lifetime and you took pride in that and provided for your family, your sense of self is better. Your mm. identity of yourself is better. So you relate better to your family because mm. uh, you felt as though deep down inside as men, we are trained to be the, we go out and we hunt and we yeah. provide. And if we feel like we're doing that, then our sense of self is better. Mm. Um, when you're missing that sense, if you feel like, okay, I just won the lottery and I have a whole lot of money, but you don't feel like you earned it, yeah. then yeah, there's there's a little bit of a space there where you don't feel like you've uh, provided for your family through your own hard work. So there is a subtle difference there, absolutely. Um, to your point about uh, people with excessive wealth and their mental state, it is not any better they have their own set of problems that come, whether it's in the end it boils down to relations yeah. and, 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 and how you're relating to others. And, and they have the same issues. I've had, I've had people down on their luck who are homeless and I've had you know, nationally renowned scientists in my office sitting with the same set of problems. Unbelievable. And I, a couple of years back, I was on listening to the radio and the uh, guy who wrote a book on the Johnson family, now in New Brunswick, 
anyone who hangs out around New Brunswick is going to come and realize that the Johnsons are a big deal, right? So Johnson and Johnson was founded here in like the late 1800s. Three brothers came up with this idea to make little kits for the beach, right? And put a little lotion in there, put a couple band-aids, whatever, put in a little kit. And I think they're the ones who coined the term first aid. Who knows? Someone can Google that, right? But they're the ones who they made their started their business on first aid kits. They would drive them out to the beach. They would go fire departments, police departments, schools, selling these first aid kits. Then Johnson and Johnson became what it became, right? And at some point, the amount of wealth that they were bringing in, because they were ahead of this sort of in-home little first aid, first responder type of uh, of healthcare uh, service, that type of service, they were the first people to do it. So they were ahead of the curve. They were ahead of everyone. And but the, what the author said is that now they're on the third generation or fourth generation of wealth that is absurd. And the way that the wealth is handled is that when when people get that amount of wealth, they put in a trust and everyone in the family gets a monthly allowance. And that monthly allowance is around 10 minimum, minimum, just for being part of the family. It's going to be from 10 to 15K a month, right? Minimum. And they can approve more, okay? Because they have to spend certain amounts of money. So they get, but they give everyone that allowance. And then they give to charitable trusts what they have to, like 5% or whatever. They have to spend 5% outside the family. So when you see reasons for, what, when you see all these families, Carnegie's and all these, having these massive endowments and sending people to college, they're actually bound by law. Right to give out five percent uh, outside the family. So, and this money, by the way, like the amount that they accrue on the investments and the interest is more than these uh, than any of this. Right, so they're not losing money by giving each fifteen thousand a month to each family member or whatever the amount is. But what the guy said was, in his interview of over forty members of the Johnson family and those who married into them, he said he found one normal person. It is insane. One normal person. And it was one of the guys, one of the great grandsons and everyone else. I mean, they own the New York Jets. They basically own half of New Brunswick, pays rent to them, right? Uh, their headquarters are here. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson's obviously the hospital is named after them. You can find a million things named after them, right? Um, but one out of the 40 is... Uh, so would you say it's accurate that the middle class folks have the healthiest emotional and mental states, healthier than in comparison to the super rich and the very, very poor. Would you say that that's actually a fact? I, it, it's hard to say. I don't have the data to support that. But just anecdotally speaking, I would say that the middle class has the means and probably the experience to adapt to change the best. And that's usually uh, our ability to adapt is directly correlated to happiness in my experience. Mm. So middle class is usually one that's have struggled uh, at some point and have done well at some point. So, yeah, I, w I would say anecdotally speaking. So uh, that's, that's in the case. That's interesting. This idea of ability to adapt uh, being what did you say? It's a source of 
it's directly correlated to your ability to be happy because mm. you're adjusting to your surroundings. Constant adjustment. Yes. Constant adjustment. That makes sense. And you know one of the things that I actually worry about, and I don't know if this if this comes across in your field, but all of us in the world, there's like a theme today in the world, are thinking of how are we going to live if our house of cards, and I don't I actually don't think it's a house of cards, but I do think that massive temporary um, – calamities, catastrophes can force people for periods of time to actually have to live in ways that they're not used to living, such as without technology, right? Without electricity. Like, I don't think, I don't believe what a lot of people put out that the world is, could, all this is a house of cards. I, a lot out of it could be true or not, but the interconnect, the connectivity the presence of electricity, now the presence of microchips, right, is so, it's like the light bulb, right? I mean, it's like the electricity. It's like all over the place that it's very, it's going to take a lot to knock out power, right? But what's a reasonable assessment is, yeah, there could be a month, maybe two months, a calamity, catastrophe could happen that would set human beings, or like not everyone on the earth, but in certain regions to be forced to live right a little bit without these things that that's within the within reason like a uh an accidental bombing right an accident or a hack right could force us to live without power for three weeks that's possible right absolutely i'm always thinking right i actually feel that we actually should take this more seriously and we should this is so big I, I don't believe in the idea of, well, when it happens, I'll adjust. That I don't believe in because physically you can't, right? Physically you won't be able to. You can't suddenly adjust to a gang or of roving, you know, a uh, roving gang coming down your street. That's not something you can just adjust to. You got to be prepared, right? So that's when we talk about adaptation, I always think about that type of adaptation. Like, what is the mentality of people going to be? Because if you look at these movies, all these post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic movies, one of the things is that people don't even pass the first five minutes. They go crazy right away, right? Or it's in like, okay, they're, they're, they're sane for a while. Then on the third week, they snap, right? They either kill themselves or kill other people or whatever. That's all psycho it's psychological, right, at that point. So I'm always saying we got to be psychologically, mentally prepared for this to happen because it is mind over matter at some point, right? So talk to me about, like, have you ever come across that, like, the idea of let's we got to be mentally prepared for massive change? That's what you just, like, what you're talking about, adaptation, you know, to be able to adapt. Right. So it's about... How flexible are we? When an employer is looking at you to hire you, right? Yeah. He wants to know how flexible you are to be able to do. He may be hiring you for one job, but is this guy able to do other jobs in the case of a situation where everything falls apart? Yeah. Can this person be able to do these tasks? So um, I always thought one of the best sayings in the world was the Boy Scout saying of always be prepared. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they fundamentally teach you in case everything goes wrong, What's your ability to critically think and solve problems mm. one at a time? Yeah. Um, I, I agree. We need to have that mentality. As a psychiatrist, I will tell my patients, I want you to work through. We, we do 
um, what we call well safety planning, where yeah. if this goes wrong, what are you going to do? Okay, what happens if option one fails? Yeah. What's option two? And so on and so forth. So I will sit with my patients and go through, if you can't reach your sponsor, are you, who's the next person mm. you're going to call? Who's the, who, who, who's finally, who's the person you'll reach out to if everybody is not available for you? Yeah. Um, and then they may come back with, oh, well, I don't talk to my brother because, you know, we had gotten an mm. argument 15 years ago. Mm. Well, that's when you tell this person, okay, uh, drop the pride yeah. and, and you need help and everything is falling apart yeah. and you need to survive. What are you going to do? Are you going to mm-hmm. swallow your pride and call you this person? Yeah. So, so it boils down to that ability of how flexible are you? How ready are you to drop your uh, pridefulness? That's true. Um, and, 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 and the successful patients who are recovering, oftentimes they come to me after many disasters of their own, whether it's somebody passing away or mm-hmm. losing their job. And, and to the individual, that's a calamity. That's like, okay, my life is gone. My life is over. And in reality, it's never o- over. Yeah. As long as you can critically problem solve one thing at a time, uh, you can always recover. Yeah. And it comes down to critical thinking. Yeah. So Triaging. Yes, yes. That's a big thing. I, I feel like we're losing our ability to critically think at some point when we become too... Uh, when you rely too much on algorithms, or, yeah. but these video games are just the algorithms, right? If you if you do this, you yeah. get to the next level. You do that, yeah. and that, and that's taking away that ability to critically think. So so I think that's where we have to start yeah. is educating ourselves first. Yeah. Are we able to critically think, and then and problem solve? And and uh, when Sandy happens, it was just a taste. When Hurricane Sandy happened in the Northeast, it was just a taste of what could possibly happen. Now. If there's a 0.1% chance of it happening, right, something like this, but that 0.1% chance, it's not a setback. It's the end. For a lot of people, it's going to be the end. So I'm actually a big believer in preparing for that stuff and, like you said, triaging. Just take it one step at a time. What's the first step if if all this stuff went down, right? And we went back and Sandy had lasted an extra four weeks, let's say hypothetically. It could have. We would actually be in that primitive uh, zone again. First step is to secure yourself, to secure your body, right? That no one kills you. That's the first step, to stay alive. To stay alive, you need a group. You need a group. You cannot just stay alive by yourself. A big family is lucky at that point, right? So you need other people. And the simple reason is that you need to sleep as a human being. Someone needs to be awake. So you need local friends that are almost walking distance, half a day's walk, to walk to them and to have a spot. So number two, how are you going to defend yourselves? We don't have, we don't take firearms training seriously, right? And I'm like, when when I have... Some women in the family say, no, no, we're not going to have guns. I'm not listening to you. I'm getting guns. I'm going to own guns, right? Because in the beginning, it's like, okay, we have infants and kids and stuff. But plus, that stuff, worse, we should have firearms, right? Think of the mental prep. Uh, think Just by doing the mental preparation, it puts you at ease. Just the fact that you thought about this, right? We got to have firearms. So security is the first thing. What's the second thing? 
first, physical, physically knowing how to use a firearm. Secondly, having a group. Thirdly, now you have to worry about feeding yourself. And that can come. That to me is the third, the third thing can come, right? How do, how are we going to feed it? How are we going to eat? How are we going to see? But if you have a group, you can all think of that together. You can go as a group and leave half the group behind and enough people with firearms training to know how to defend themselves. So when talking about adaptation, that's the extreme. Now, another point that I want to bring up, and we haven't even really got to the other stuff that we want to bring up. All this is just really interesting stuff that came one thing out after another. Here's something that when you talk about adaptation, it's oftentimes people prepare for the worst, but they don't prepare for the best. And that messes people up too. And I'll give you an example of, I mean, Super Bowl Sunday is around the corner. And we've seen a couple Super Bowls where it just seems that the opposing teams did not prepare for the best. Right? If you think about it, you don't always have to prepare for the worst. Sometimes you're tested by the best. As Allah says, We've, We test you with evil, with good and evil. And some of the scholars say that good was preceded evil in the verse because good is a harder test. Right? Uh, if you if the bad came and you weren't used ready for it, right? It's almost like, okay, you can recover and it's understandable. But when the good comes and you mess that up, well, what's next, right? Because think about it, a, a bad thing happened to me, I wasn't ready. This, the future could still be brighter, but a good, the good came to me and I wasn't ready, well, what's next? If you couldn't handle the good, when that good is not gonna come around. So when we're talking about a guy like Pete Carroll and he's, how much is on the clock? What, like a minute 30 is on the clock and he's got four downs to go one yard or has he got three downs left to go one yard? And he's got the best back in the world, right? And he got sidetracked thinking, oh, what if Brady could take it back? So let me kill it down. Let me just throw it down in the garbage, right? And he didn't even do it right. You throw it down in the garbage by throwing it to the end of the end zone, not in the middle of the field, right? Uh, so he didn't even, so that's an example to me when I look at someone the pressure of everything actually going right, that did you prepare for that extreme or not, right? So that's another thing that when you talk about adaptation, that comes to mind, you know? And, and a part of that is also preparing. I think the difference between the, the successful coaches like Bill Belichick is they prepare for the good times and the bad times, and they prepare for your mistakes yeah. as an adversary, uh, anticipating what you'll do wrong. Yeah. So, so playing out all these scenarios in your head, takes up a lot of time yeah but in the end you'll, you'll, you'll win the game well, well that's the thing is that as one of the things i always felt about muslims in the modern world is that just the fact that the way we practice our religion certain things that we have to do such as juma right such as straining the rose right such as the idea of having an imam the idea of knowing where your local masjid is the idea of fasting okay all of these things are the immediate things that come into my mind if this whole world was to radically and suddenly change. We know what leadership looks like. We know who our local leaders are. Like them or hate them, you know who they are. You know who leads the prayer and, and runs the message, right? Um, 
we know where that masjid is. It's local enough to pray Fajr and Aisha and Jummah. So that would be the local spot to go to. Fasting has made your body flexible. You can adapt. You fast. Right? And if you're like, oh, I'm hungry. But wait a second. I fasted Ramadan. We fasted summer Ramadans. Whole communities and youth fasted the summertime Ramadan, which was tough. We know how to get in rows quickly. We know that order. Right? So I feel that well, I always think about how, and also our almost everywhere too. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I have to go to Brazil and find the Palestinian community there, no problem. Yes. Right? We have the same, we're going to have similar habits, all that. Um, or if I had to go somewhere else, you should look for the local masjid. We know how to call each other at then. We know when to meet up. All these things in like emergency, bare bone emergency situations has that preparation built into the religion. 100%. And, and it's from a psychiatry point of view, I look at these as grounding tools. Yeah. So, oh, that's a so, great word. Grounding so tools. When, when oftentimes when you're treating an anxious or depressed patient, I tell people, bring yourself back to the moment. Yeah. Because your, your, your head is all over the place, yeah. yet your body is here. Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes for people, it's a token that they may have or a rubber band on their wrist. For us as Muslims, it's our, our prayers are the best grounding tools. Mm-hmm. Literally, they're grounding tools. We put yeah. our hand on the ground. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're, we're bringing ourselves back to reality five times a day that this is where you are. Bring yourself back to the moment. And, and you'll, most of you most likely will notice that after you get done, you feel like you're in your same mind yeah. to approach problems. Then. So the community, the, the imam, being able to go to the masjid, no matter what's going on in your life, you know that you can always go to the masjid at Maghrib time and there'll be a group of people there that will be there for the same purpose. Yeah. And that grounds an individual. Totally grounds you. Yes. And and looking at the masjid and the group, there are certain things I can't do that for sure someone in the masjid can do, right? And and that's also something that gives you the feeling that, all right, things will be taken care of. You don't have to do everything yourself, right? Now, let's now take a look at the opposite end. And this is going to tie into a lot of the stuff that we wanted. I wanted to bring up, which was really the origins of what I wanted to bring up. Uh, let's say that the, the ubiquity of the microchip and all that stuff goes undis- not, uh, uninterrupted. Electricity today, the idea of losing electricity is very minuscule, right? It's not something that happens often, at least where we live. The idea that you could put electricity somewhere, get electricity somewhere, it's common. It's like no big deal. Well, today we have the Internet of Things, which is the idea that there are microchips everywhere that connect through Wi-Fi to each other. And the data is synced to a machine or a phone, right? In 20 years the idea of the internet of things and the microchip being everywhere integrated to each other through Wi-Fi and the spread of almost like national grids of Wi-Fi, right? At least in public spheres, like Qatar has had it for a long time. Singapore has had it for a long time. I mean, America is such a big country, but the idea of one of Wi-Fi being everywhere on one grid. So all this information is integrated, right? Is going to become a reality, right? Uh, most likely we're headed in that direction and Allah knows best what's going to happen, but that's where we're headed to. So we also have to start thinking of what if none of this apocalyptic stuff happens and the future of the world is not even screens and webs. It's ubiquitous. Everything is connected, 
Okay. Your shirt has a microchip in it so that your so that, you know, marketers can know what you're wearing and there's no way to escape it. Right. Your toilet has a microchip in it so that you get immediately, you know, your diseases that come up. Uh, you get a report on your phone telling you after six months of the data, right? It's all going to sync with an algorithm telling you, well, you need to get cancer checked, right? So that people's lives extend to then 80 comes the new 40, right? And then people go and live in 120 years and all that stuff. So all of this stuff could also be a possibility. And that computers and games are, uh, computers are just like recyclable things, like paper. Like a pad of paper today is not something you think about. Mm -hmm. Well, computers will reach that point. Computer, you can buy it for 15 bucks. Recyclable almost, right? Uh, throw it out when you don't want to use it anymore. Because all it is in the end of the day is a screen. right? Everything, you're not saving any information on it. Uh, everything is in the cloud. So when that becomes the future, we also have to think about that other thing. Because at this point, that way of living so virtually is the opposite of grounding, right? It's pulling people further into an imaginary world where when you have a movie like Ready Player One, where he's thinking of, they got, you got the goggles now, right? What are they called again? The, um, you know, these goggles of the screen is the whole goggles. Virtual reality. So yeah, these VR uh, goggles, right? You put this thing on. And it gives you peripheral vision to the point that, you know, if, if it shows you falling, you people actually fall because your mind is tricked. And then you have a bodysuit to wear, right? And that bodysuit can contract on you if someone pushes you or hits you, right? So you can actually have feeling in your whole body. So you could live, and the whole idea, the premise of this, uh, of the book, which I didn't read because he had some... He said some obnoxious things. I just threw the book out, literally threw it out the window when I was reading it in the car. Um, he had some obnoxious things to say in the first chapter, so I just threw it out the window. But the, the, the uh, cause I don't really just tell, I'm not tolerating certain things. Sure. So he, the th premise of the book is that people were living in misery, but through this virtual reality, they're happy, right? Because it's so real, feels so real. So this is the opposite of grounding tools. It's taking people into La La Land, complete La La Land, which we as Muslims will not accept. So we, but if we are failing screen time now, right, if we're failing that test and, and, and not really being preparing the next generation, not able to convince or enforce certain limitations on ourselves and on our kids, then when that mega virtual temptation comes around, we will totally fail that too. So talk to us because you're a big advocate and you said some things that I've repeated on this podcast that this uh, idea of that the screen for kids under 12 is absolute poison, right? So it's nothing less than poison to the brain. And I have a feeling that one of the reasons is that it gives you, you lose your reference point to reality. 100%. Uh, uh, and, and some of this is from my own experience in seeing patients. Um, in that we as people need to see other people and interact with other people. We need to be able to respond to facial expressions, learn that ability to, you know, when people are saying one thing to you, but their body and their face is expressing something else to you, we need to be able to respond to that and train to that. Uh, 
and and by by supplementing actually not even supplementing by these chat rooms and text messages taking the place of actual communication uh we're, we're losing our ability to be able to do that mm. to actually interact with others so so the reason why i think it's poison is because screens are stimulating they're overstimulating they make you uh want more and it becomes an addiction because you want more stimulation. More of the screen. More of the screen because yeah. the, 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 the energy that's emitted from a screen is addictive. It is, mm. It's overstimulating your brain. It's almost like you're inducing yourself, and this is my opinion, you're inducing like ADHD state almost by saying that, okay, I need more stimulation. And just sitting and interacting with other people doesn't do enough for me anymore. Mm. So... That's why I think that um, it's good if it's a tool, like you mentioned earlier, a means to communicate. That's one thing. But if it's taking the place of our interactions, yeah. boys should be out on the field running, laughing, playing with each other, learning physical skills. But if they're instead playing FIFA and moving their fingers around and talking to somebody on a, on a, a, through their earpiece, that's not, that's not the same. Yeah. You can't take the place of that. So, so that's why I think it's poison is because, A, it's, it's, it's taking away the ability for people to critically think, and it's making them siloed. It's giving them a false sense of interacting with others when, in reality, they're losing many interactions with people from their family, from their siblings, from community members. Um, I think it's a real problem. It's a massive problem. Now, the Internet, I remember... Um Around 96 is when the internet started getting to everyone's home in America. There's comments after the internet. Around um, 2005, though, the internet being online became one of those things where you could spend the whole night online. And that's that was the advent of YouTube, right? When YouTube came around and users could put their own videos on, that's when the internet really started to get a little bit more interesting right and you're just watching these videos after video after video after video and then the next part in the uh in the history is 2007 when that entered the palm of your hand right and we're now into 2019 so we're now looking at nearly 20 years of interesting internet and really only maybe 10 or a dozen years of having it in your hand right in that period of time Human beings like to experiment. They like to explore. They need to explore. And one of the things that I found is I've always used the internet um, for my own purposes. One of the things I found is there's certain days where I've been on the phone, online and different apps all day, right? And literally, I would think to myself at the end of the day, I would think to myself, what actually happened today, right? Like what actually occurred? And I, I felt so empty, even though I, I know I did stuff, right? I wasn't wasting time. But what actually occurred to me? And I felt like something's wrong. You felt the sense of emptiness. Total emptiness, even though at the moment when you answer an email, you feel, oh, wow, sad, I answered an email or I answered this or did that. Absolute no memory. It's like none of those. It's like you licked sugar all day. That's what you, you know. You, you, you're, something was going into your mouth. But at the end of the day, you're like, I just lick sugar. That's what I felt like. And I think if you asked 
uh, a gambling addict, what that felt like mm. next to a slot machine yeah. that he played on all day, he would say the same thing. Yeah. Because he's sitting there waiting to hit. And more, 80% of the time, he's not going to hit his whatever numbers come up on the machine. But that one time that it does out of 100 yeah. makes him feel like, oh, it was worth it for me to sit here all day. Yeah. But at the end of the day, probably lost all of his money. Yeah. And the, the idea of going cold turkey. So what happened was around, I think it was 2016 or 15. Um, I really felt this is no good. This is no good. This has to be stopped, right? Uh, it's totally messing up my sleep cycle. So Ramadan that, that year is when I tucked my phone away completely and bought a flip phone. So that was really important. And one, things I, one thing I didn't want, I felt like I didn't want kids to lose their childhood to this. An adult can mess up 10 years of his life, but he has a reference point. You can't lose the reference point. So for the listeners out there, I highly recommend you take this seriously. Don't let kids lose their reference point of real life. So you remember growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, there was something called nothing to do. There was something called the house is really quiet and time is moving so slowly. And it was great. Yeah. And when I took the phone and I said, that's it. And that year, the computer and the phone, that Ramadan, it was life changing. For you know, in that respect, because in the respect of that period of time from 2007 and five, when the this stuff started to suck people in, until then, it transformed everything. Because again, there were days, and you're fasting, so you're not even eating, where you sit on the couch, maybe reading a book or something, or sitting on the floor reading a book, and you're like, the house is quiet, nothing's pinging, nothing, no noises are made. The idea of reaching to quickly look at something is not there. When someone walks in the room, that's an event. When someone rings the doorbell, that's a hap- an occurrence, not a nuisance anymore, right? It was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I felt it's very important for, the, for children. That has to be their origin. Human beings has to be the origin. When they grow up and as they grow older, and they get exposed to technology, at least they could always refer back to the actual origin of life, which is human beings, right? And I and having grown up in Tom's River, very lonely uh, place, not, and the, the where we lived, neighbors are like far apart. It's not like really close homes next to each other. You can go a day, not see anyone, like really quiet, nothing going on. So I felt that was really important and kids shouldn't lose that childhood at the same time, I feel it's dangerous to go to the opposite extreme. You cannot have like a 15-year-old who's still curious about this stuff. Absolutely. So talk to us about like, would you advise, how do you advise the gradual net? Uh, like I would really, I really want my kids also when they're teens to totally be, there's no mystification, right? With this stuff. This stuff it should not be. Uh, viewed in their mind as a mystique that one day one day I'm going to be out of this house I'm going to have everything well you're going to create like an addict with that so I think it's actually as a psychological thing whatever latest TV flat screen video games it's I would think it's important to own it 
Yes. And for them to realize it's right there, but then you have it on a schedule. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So this this boils down to us being parents again. Yeah. It's about not giving the screen, let, not letting the screen be the babysitter. Mm. And and when your child comes to you and said, say, I'm bored. That's great. I told myself, I'm so glad you're bored. Yeah. Daydream. Yeah. They have to be able. Daydreaming is okay, and, and they have to sit and not have to have access to things uh, to a certain extent. But if they are going to use the computer, the, the phone, phone not as much, but let's just say video games, play with them. Mm -hmm. Sit with them and teach them while you're sitting with them. Use it as an opportunity to teach. The same way you earlier compared your computer to a pen and paper. It's a tool. Yeah. And we should teach it to our children as a tool, as a means to earn a living maybe, or be better at what you do already, yeah. but it's not meant to replace. And and also, things. and it's also uh, they're not dumb. They can understand that um, they can be made aware and stut and examine the harms of these things. Right? It's like uh, they're not stupid. They understand. They can understand that when you're looking at a screen, you're not looking at someone else, or whatever's happening in the brain is happening. Right? And I think that awareness is also important. Right to treat Absolutely. them maturely, and not treat them like oh, just don't look at. Well, for kids, I for the for the really young ones, I just don't even let them come near it. Right, mm -hmm. uh, I want them to know it's it's not good at all for their brains. Physically, it's not good. It's only like touching the stove. But as they grow older, say, listen, we're going to use this, right, in necessary ways or fun ways. But you got to understand why human beings need to put a limit on. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe I misspoke earlier by calling it a poison. Yeah. We shouldn't fear it. We should, we yeah. should embrace it and, and, and make it a part of our daily interactions, but not, it shouldn't be a part of the dinner table. Yeah. And it, it should all be, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 uh, no problem. Go you know, put all the screens away at dinner time yeah. because that's when the face-to-face -face interactions are supposed to be. Yeah. And it's not, uh, it's like you wouldn't let a two-year-old handle the stove. Right. Yeah. So why would you let them uh, get addicted to something at that young age? Whereas if he got addicted later on, he could fix himself as an adult and, and the brain's still being developed. Now, the smaller the screen, the worse it is. Right. I've heard that. Is that there any truth to that? The smaller the screen, the more narrow the, the vision gets. It's bad for the vision, et cetera. Is that certainly true? bad for the vision? Yeah. It, it, it limits the, um, First of all, it's easy. The smaller the screen, the easy access to it, right? You yeah. can just reach over and grab it and just yeah. hold it in your hand all day. Whereas if it's a big screen, it has a location, and you have to go to it, yeah. and, and and eventually you have to turn it off. Yeah. Whereas phones, you don't need to turn them off, yeah. right? They're just, they're all the time watching you and listening to you and listening to everybody around you. So um, every room should not have a TV, but there should be a TV room where yeah. you can go to. And, and maybe have a little bit thing. of family time and watch together or something. Yeah, so I have basically a, uh, we have a TV. They they watch stuff and I do it as a type of thing where you, you, want, you have to remove the mystique from the thing. Yes. I found the TV is is a lot better in the sense that it's big, you're far away. It's not a suck, doesn't suck you in as much as the smaller, has to be closer to your face type of thing. Right. And also, have you come across this statistic that said that eye cancer is on the rise? I did not. That's interesting. Yeah, look that. Actually, you know, let me let me look it up right now, actually, because it is something that I came across. 
eye cancer statistics are on the rise. This year, an estimated 3,000 adults, or 3.5, uh, 3,500 adults in the United States will be diagnosed with eye cancer. I mean, it's not that a lot. That's not a lot, right? But it's on the rise for sure, uh, and it's on the rise, and the age is getting lesser, right? So it's uh, coming in to kids, right? Uh, here it is: three out of four children. Okay. have diseases in one of their eyes while one in four have it in both eyes right so you know that's it's very interesting that is very interesting that's so scary. Yeah. yeah because the eyes are not made to look at screens at that age right at that uh, and the brightness and the consistency uh, at that uh, you know at that frequency Right, so that's one of the issues. Now, let's move to another subject, which is very important. Well, we sort of touched on it, but I gave a khutbah oh, maybe 10 years ago in New Haven about depression. I said, you know, Muslim, they don't get depressed. Muslim doesn't get depressed. And a woman came and she got so upset, right? And it's clinical and don't shame us and we're all depressed. I said, okay, calm it down. What's the issue? She said, it's clinical, it's out of our hands. And we grew up never believing that depression being, which we call it a, like an extreme sadness that's prolonged, right? That you snap out of it. However, there is obviously clinical uh, types of depression. So could you actually give us, and I'm sure many other people who speak on this subject, you give us the guideline, what is the difference, right? Between the type of depression that you hear people talk about that can be solved through words and beliefs, Right and actions versus that clinical type of depression. Break it sure, down. Sure. So first thing, depression is a is a normal human emotion, and we all experience it. How we deal with it is different. Yeah. Right. The individuals deal with depression differently, but um, it's sad. It's it's normal to be sad. It's yeah. normal to experience that. Um, when it gets to the point where it's disturbing your daily existence, to the point where you're isolating yourself. You're not able to sleep. You're you're not able to get motivated and get out of bed. Your 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 energy and concentration is extremely low. Uh, you know you're harboring overwhelming feelings of guilt, affecting your appetite. Um, that that's a sign. Those are signs of clinical depression. Uh, the, the, and when those things last for more than two weeks, if you have any five of those symptoms, then that's considered major depression that needs a clinician's yeah. evaluation. So um, it's it's important to distinguish the two just because you need to know who to reach out for. Now, if you're having a bad day, had a rough day at work, you come home, talk to your wife, talk to your children, and that'll probably make you feel better, right? That's normal, that's a day, that's a yeah. bad day. But if you're having a bad two weeks where it's affecting your health, yeah. where you're not, your sleep and your appetite especially are, 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 are off, then that's when you probably want to see a therapist or a psychiatrist and, and get an evaluation for what your needs are. But at what point is something physical and what point is something can be solved through talking, right? Because I do remember and I do know and believe that there is clinical depression because for myself, I was taking a vitamin at one point that someone had given me. 
and it was it totally messed me up and i didn't know it was messing me up until i would sit there thinking i'm totally down but what's making me down it's always a thought a memory and then you just push it out of your mind right uh but when this was happening i was like there's absolutely no reason there's nothing that's bothering me right but i'm just like so down and then my friend who also got that vitamin too he brought it up he said that stuff made me depressed and i was like wait a second he gave it to you at the same time he gave it to me and we were it just we had this negative reaction to this vitamin right as soon as i stopped taking the vitamin everything was better again right i was back to my normal self again so i do believe that there can be a physical you know uh depression sure but when things go wrong one after the other and you start falling into this state let's say hypothetically death unemployment weight gain uh loss of friend house was taken away lost my car all happened in the span of six months and then a person is completely down and out what how do you treat that with medicine you, you need to treat that with like it needs to be treated with actions so that's where i'm lost when it comes to psychiatrists so so medicine puts you in a situation where you could deal with these problems better but they don't solve the problem how does it do that so you have three neurotransmitters you have serotonin you have norepinephrine you have dopamine these are the three things in your body that regulate a lot of different things but emotions are one of them okay so so off what's been studied is that in people with anxiety and depression clinical which is clinical their levels of serotonin are, are low so the medication over the course of a few weeks will look to replenish your serotonin um, some medications will work on serotonin and norepinephrine and 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 so the idea is is that the medicines get you back to a state where you are in a position to make better decisions about your life Okay. So it's not just a biological approach. It's a biopsychosocial approach when you're developing a plan for treating a depressed patient. So you have the medication aspect, then you have the psychosocial aspect, which is okay, uh, have a family meeting. Get information regarding how is this person relating to you? How is this person relating to other family members and coworkers and what can be changed regard regarding that? Okay. So that it, it makes sense when you're saying, okay, because of these incidents that happen in the real world, this alteration happens to your body. Now we're going to cheat a little bit. We're going to fix them. We're going to increase them, right, with a pill, so that you can have the wherewithal to go back and fix them. The, yeah. the incidents that happen in the real world. Now, maybe you had a predisposition to having low serotonin in some capacity. Maybe yeah. you have a family history of depression, and the stressors that happen to you brought about the depression that may have been underlying anyway. Mm -hmm. You'll meet a lot of people that will be depressed. You mentioned it yourself; they'll be depressed for no reason whatsoever, and that's the scary part when yeah. they when they come in and they say everything is fine with my life, but I don't know what's going on. So, so you'd say that's just a chemical thing. It, it could be. Okay. So that that's when you look at you check their thyroid to make sure the thyroid's functioning okay. You check their uh, some of their blood tests to make sure that they're not anemic or something like that you do a full yeah. workup to make sure that there's no physical causes so whatever medication whatever vitamin that you may have been taking may be a depleted one of the neurotransmitters or the activity of them so so many different things that affect our moods i uh, i just don't get 
the concept of the antidepressant being something that's a daily thing. Like, I do get X, Y, and Z happen, okay, cause you to be down. We, we combine the, med- the, the physical and the social mm-hmm. elements. That I understand. Now, you just said that some people there, that could be a disposition. Now, are they, t- is that something that they need to, there's something they're taking all the time, right? It becomes like a daily thing. Initially, it's a daily thing. Yeah. Um, for about, if you're dealing with a first time episode of major depressive disorder, yeah. the patient would take the medication for about eight to 12 months. Yeah. Um, and then you hope at that point that they've developed the skills to be able to cope with stress better, you would try to wean the medication off and see how Wait, but that, but, but in that case, you're going back to some events happening in the real world. Yes. So, but we're talking about cases where, like we said earlier, that patient walked in, he said, everything's fine. Everything's fine. So in, in the course of treatment, you would ask them, are you regulating your sleep okay? How, how are you doing with your uh, food? Are you eating regularly? So you're still asking about real world occurrences. Yeah, because because at this, probably, Many of us um, have unhealthy lifestyles, yeah. so you want to assess for that as well. Um, there are those patients who the depression will recur after you take them off the medication because their baseline serotonin levels, their, their neurotransmitter levels are not up to par. So they will be on medication for life. It's the same way, you would, the way I explain it to patients is if you were diagnosed with high blood pressure and you fix the blood pressure over the course of a few months, you, would you say you're cured? No. No. So yeah. in that instance, you wouldn't take them off the antihypertensive. You would leave them on it, and then you would do adjustments in their lifestyle, and their diet, yeah. their exercise regimen, and then hopefully they get back to a, a functional life. There's got to be a difference in the language. So what do you, you advise? How do we alter this language? We Do we separate clinical depression and depression language-wise? So How we refer to these things. So there's, there's depression that's in the normal spectrum of our daily existence that we can deal with through normal psychosocial interventions by yeah. talking to other people, by speaking to you know, your imam to a certain extent. However, when it gets to the point where it's affecting your physical well-being, when you're, when you're having trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, when you're waking up in the middle of the night and not able to fall back asleep, or waking up too early in the morning, when you're isolated, when you have no desire to leave mm. your home, when you are um, cutting off ties with people, uh, when you're when you're when you're not eating appropriately or eating excessively, these are all signs that you are not well physically. And when you're not well physically, it can only progress to uh, it won't get better on its own, unfortunately. And then, unfortunately, people progress to having suicidal thoughts. I am of the firm belief that suicidal thoughts, the, the thought to take your own life is never normal. It's a never a normal part of your existence. So you should always reach out for a clinician 100% of the time when, when, it, when you say to yourself, I, I think I'd be better off, not alive. That's not normal. You know, animals don't commit suicide. Yeah. Right? It's true. So so something is wrong with us as human beings when we're thinking well, we about that. that. Yeah. And that's when we need to reach out. So my job as a psychiatrist finds to get you out of depression and anxiety, but it's also to keep you safe. Yeah. To make sure that you know you're not going to hurt yourself or you're not going to hurt others. For us, that's the heart attack. That's the yeah. worst case scenario. How critical is uh, right sleep when it comes to mental health? 
it's so critical. I so when I educate patients regarding their mood, I say you're gonna watch two things. You're gonna watch sleep and you're gonna watch appetite. If you're not sleeping, you know, you're not getting your six to eight hours sleep, uh, and you want to sleep and you're tired, or if you're not sleeping enough and you're not tired, something's wrong. Yeah. Sleep is our regulator. Sleep tells us sleep allows us to dream, it allows us to recover. Um, and those are all critical things. If we're not getting those, then something's wrong. Do these, uh, what about time of sleep? Something that you have any, did you have any, you have any observations on that? Because we had a, a type of therapist who's uh, Dr. Murad Feruz. He's very big on time of sleep as well. So Not just the time, amount. So so years ago before we had electricity, and we're going back to not having electricity yeah. a lot today, um, people used to sleep when the sun went down. The, the so, issue of sleep irregularity would like non-existent because they weren't worried about it. Either. Yeah. So so they would go to sleep when the sun went down, and then frequently they would wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. Actually, ironically, to pray. Yeah. They would pray or they would read, yeah. then they would go back to sleep. No stress. And yeah. They wake up when the sun comes up. Yeah. Eight hours sleep is important. Yeah. And if you could, if you think about it, our days vary a lot here rather than other parts of the world. Yeah. Right? But. If you sleep when it gets dark and you wake up when the sun comes up, I think you'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, so so you, that means you're going back to the earliness of the sleep. Yes. Like uh, to me, if I uh, if I'm forced to stay up late because of events or something, it, it just messes my next day up. I, I I'm gonna have to get those hours in, which means you're not getting an early start to your day. But sleeping early, and I mean, like people think this is ridiculous, right? But I'm I'm literally talking that at seven o'clock. I'm looking at ending, everything's winding down. And I got 90 minutes to completely wind myself down. And at 8.30, you're sleeping. It's almost like a child almost. But in reality, like something I've just really discovered the past six, seven months, I'm telling you, it will change people's lives. It will mm -hmm. change their mind, even their mentalities. Certain mental habits that people fall into Right, and certain other habits people fall into, be it excessive eating or undisciplined this or that, it really all goes back to you're suffering a type of very, you're you're, you're tasting strands of insanity, because you're sleep deprived at a consistent level. Oh, absolutely, right? absolutely. You're also, you're facing addiction because when you're yeah. not sleeping enough, then you're drinking lots of coffee. You drink lots of coffee every Ramadan. I get headaches yep. in the first week yeah. because I drink too much coffee. So, wow. uh, but I get detoxed. Yeah. My, you know, every Ramadan is my detox. Yeah. Uh, for many things. Well, that's why I said uh, what, what we have in the Dean is that grounding stuff. Yes. Right. That detox, like uh, the idea that I'm going to lose something if everything goes south. Well, you you lose something every year with Ramadan. You you deal with it. Yes. Right. And uh, believe it or not, because of fasting, I actually never built a tolerance to caffeine, so I actually have to stop drinking caffeine late. And caffeine doesn't even help wake me up. Caffeine is something that if, if I'm alert and I drink coffee, I become more alert. But if I'm if I need to sleep, caffeine doesn't solve that problem for me. So I think that the a lot of Muslims, this is something really part of our guidance. And Allah says in Surah Tinnaba, we made the night for sleep, right? Uh, our mental health taking from that guidance is really going to be improved and it will be different. We will become different. We have something that this is part of our deen that we should not be following 
the rest of society going down the route where 2 a.m. is a normal time to go to sleep. Like 1 a.m. is nothing these days, right? If you think about it, 1 a.m. is something that's not. I remember back in the day where, you know, 9 was late, 11 was really late, midnight's insane, right? To be up at that hour, okay? That's because some of the fitrah stuff had still lingered somehow into our lives. Once the internet and the phones came around, it obliterated that, it nuked all those norms. But we haven't even, we were almost, we're not even a quarter of a century into looking at the generation that is growing up on this. And they're all mental cases, right? I mean, they're shooting up schools. These people are mental cases. What? This is what we're doing. And part of it, a humongous part of it, is that we're not even, we're all, we all, a lot of us suffer a very minor type of insanity when we're irregulating our sleep. And the whole zombie thing is bad sleep. Your, your skin is pale, your eyes are red, you can't focus on anything, right? Mm -hmm. You're just something that you're not even a human anymore. Proper sleep hygiene, it will cure so many of the ails that we have yeah. as a community. Um, and that involves, you talk about winding down. Winding down is very important. Oh, so it's a science that we have to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, not watching TV right before you go to sleep, not reading something too involved, um, not exercising right before bedtime to not elevate your heart rate too much. Um, so, so from the secular point of view, sometimes we tell people to do something called affirmations, mm. which is positive self-talk before you go to sleep. <laughs> oh what does God. that sound like to you? That's great. Yeah, that's, that's, subhanAllah. Sounds, you know, so, so when I was reading about affirmations when I was in school, I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like dhikr. This sounds yeah. a lot like recitation. Yeah. Uh, happy thoughts before it's, going it's to sleep. It's secular dhikr. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So it's so when I'm teaching this to people, I'm just like so I've been lucky enough that as I've learned more about psychiatry, I've become better. I think as a Muslim, just because a lot of it makes total sense to things that I've already learned. Um, so affirmations, positive self-talk before going to sleep, go to sleep with a positive frame of mind. Yeah, you'll have more peaceful sleep, and you'll wake up in a more peaceful frame of mind. And the and the thing is, um, it it takes around ninety minutes, I would say. Yeah. To Realize, okay, from now, the, the internet is done for the day. Computers are done. Phones are done, right, for the day. And that's why I think, actually, the idea of having a flip phone is really smart. So, because you need both. You need a smartphone to do your business. But you, which the, the, where you're actually needed could be on yourself, on your flip phone. Like, what happens to you if your mom wants to talk to you, right? You can't shut your phone off at 7 p.m. In this day and age, everyone's talking at all times. And your mom might need you, right? Or you, you're, someone might want to talk to you, like someone important in your life, in your day-to-day -day life. So that's why with the flip phone, there's no temptation to look at the flip phone. The screen is so boring, right? To text is so to a hassle. So it's better be important for it to text. And so you do have that ability that someone can reach you. You're not off the grid. But at the same time, there's nothing else besides calling and texting. And right. To a certain extent, I mean, it's hard for people to have two different phones. Yeah. Um, I, I think. Well, you have. I, I have one number, and the WhatsApp is actually on the smartphone. Okay. Right. And when I need, see, I don't. And when I need those apps, I could pull that out around seven or so p.m. And sometimes I go days without it. Right. I just shut it off. Yeah. Right. And what it does is it grounds your your eyes. It grounds your mind. Mm -hmm. 
and your mind doesn't race, right? And then when you need it, it's there. It's not coming with me at night uh, into my room. It's not going with me in the car because it's not, uh, you know, there's, I need the Wi-Fi in the house unless there's Wi-Fi in the building. So I, ha- I, I have it for functional purposes and my, half my business is online, right? So, but then you have your phone for immediate contacts, emergencies, whatever, and that stays with you all the time because you still, you can't be off the grid. No. You got to live, right? And that's actually, I think, for adaptation, you have to find a middle every in every era. Absolutely. And that yeah. middle is different for everybody. Every era is going to change. Real power is different for everybody. Yeah, that's Absolutely. true. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, great, great point. Yeah, and I've read so much. I've actually read so many different books. As I tend to buy soft books, I'm not interested in reading books about issues. Like I don't read political books, right? I don't read books about uh, about headache issues. I'm just not my type of personality. And at the same time, I don't read. Uh, I like to read something that's totally unrelated to what I do in the day to day. So you shut that stuff down um, on a regular day around seven. You hope that you already had your dinner. You don't want to eat too late either. It messes you up. That's a part of sleep hygiene. Yeah, it messes you You're up. Not eating too late. Yeah. And then you uh, you read. You have maybe a small snack. You read. You don't have any caffeine. And you read until you're basically tired. And then around 8.30, you could call it at night. And that is what a healthy day is because people don't know anymore what a healthy, how, how to healthy, uh, a healthy end to the day. And I know people's work sometimes change. But uh, at my work, we have events sometimes at night. Uh, which I, if in the perfect world, I would, my events would all be two to five p.m. Like we don't need to go hang out at night, right? Uh, in in a healthy world, that would be my type of event. But some things are out of your control. So people don't know how to wind down a day. They don't know how to sleep anymore. And I think, for, as Muslims, there are many things that can entrap us and mess us up in our deen if we lose this, such as catching fajr. You know, air to roll. How many people miss Fajr because they're dual? So much Islamic pride between 11 and 1 p.m. 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Missing Fajr daily, consistently, right? And I got into Ertarul for like, uh, before I learned anything about this sleep issue, right? I got into it for about uh, two months, right? I kind of got into their routine that they're going to sneak something up on you late, that you're just going to force you to watch the next episode. And I was like, I don't, I love the story. I love the show, but I don't want to get caught into this. Oh my God, I got to watch the next show because it becomes a pattern that's predictable. And I don't like to be caught up. And I was just so unproductive for that month, right? That summer month. Uh, and I just, I sort of just stopped watching, but I'm not a hater on the show or anything. People need to learn the sleep thing. It's really messes people up. Absolutely. You know? Uh, anything that you would want comes to your mind that you feel the modern Muslim has to know in terms of your your field, your expertise. I, I think it's important to know that we're, you know, as human beings, we're susceptible to a lot of different things. We're not in control. Actually, we're not in any control, yeah. right? And that's an important concept. And mental health is being able to say that I'm not in control of anything. Yeah. It's, it's a great treatment. For anxiety, and one of the things that the community is, is is exposed to right now is lots of different types of addictions, uh, and uh, I think it's important for people in the community to know to seek help. I know you may feel guilty about it, and uh, there may be a certain amount of shame, 
whether it's drug addiction or alcohol addiction, I, I'm seeing it in the community. Um, and we're, we're, we're susceptible to it, but there's treatment out there for it. Um, as, 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 as a community, I think we should try to embrace people who are suffering with and certainly screen addiction, gambling addiction, these are all out there. And with the recent legalization of, potential legalization of marijuana and gambling, these are going to become bigger issues. Um, so I think it's important to become knowledgeable about these things and, and know when to seek help. Yeah. I think that's important. The most important thing I would tell people is talk. Talk to somebody in your home, whether you're suffering with anxiety, depression, addiction issues, whatever it may be, make sure you communicate it to somebody. Because the minute we start isolating and keeping these things to ourselves, they get worse. Yeah. And I feel that uh, when it comes to addictions, there is a mental element and a spiritual element at the core of addictions. And that is the belief that something will never go away. Right? The belief that there is no way, shape, and form that this issue will ever be conquered. And once a person, once that sets, sits into the heart of a mu'min, what he has act, what shaitan has actually done to that person is put a hole in the pillar of one of the most important attributes of Allah of the capable, the able, the powerful, al-qadr. That person at that point has allowed himself to, has pulled out the attribute of qudra from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the likeness of that to someone's iman is the likeness of falling off a cliff. Right? Is saying, I'm not going to try anymore. I don't have any faith that this is going to work. Once that is gone, once the belief in Allah's qudra is gone, it's a matter of time before all iman is gone. And that person starts going down the route of, it begins to start to go, really the route of from belief to disbelief is belief to openness to heterodoxy, to not believing in certain miracles and things. Just give it time and that person is heading down the route of disbelief. What they don't realize is the core of it is the moment that you actually said and believed in your heart, there is no way that change will happen because you have now made a statement about Allah's power. And this is why addicts, I would say to you, be as addicted as you are. The one thing that will kill you is loss of belief in Allah's power. Uh, I shouldn't say be as addicted as you are. I say be as sinful as you are. Do not ever believe that change is impossible because now you're putting a statement on Allah. And a mu'min should always think about mentally, if, if I actually believe that Allah is all-powerful over all things, this addiction is a thing, right? What is my point of reference to say that something's never going to change? Two years of addiction? 10 years of addiction? 20 years of addiction? 30 years of addiction is nothing in this world of, that Allah has created, right? So if Allah wills to test you with a life that is 40 years or 50 years in which you're addicted for 20 years and you're in like the 20, in the 19th year, right? of that 20 year test that Allah is putting you in. That's nothing, right? So addicts should know and firmly believe in their hearts. Allah is powerful. This test can go for 50 years. 50 years with Allah is nothing, right? I mean, how many years? 
nations have been in slavery for like 50 years and they come out of slavery. They've been under colonization for 50 years, they come out of colonization. You never once saw them say, this is the permanent state of India will be to be a British colony. No, they all knew it's going to come to an end. If, if the British Empire, which on, upon which the sun doesn't set because that's how powerful they were, colonies everywhere, for a century because they got modernity before everyone else, they got industrialized before everyone else, they got a head start before everyone else, and they've had their empire for that long, and the sun finally did set on it, okay? You think that your addiction is more powerful than that. So m my message to addicts is that type of spiritual, mental belief, aqidah feature, that's at the core. If that's at the core, shaitan will give up on your addiction because on helping you in this issue or getting you on this issue uh, or messing you up because he realized you realize what the game is. Shaitan's game on addiction is to get you to disbelieve in the qudra of Allah. And Allah and a man once told me about, and I saw him advising uh, an addict. And, you know, the addict was open to saying that. He was saying what he was addicted to. He said, I have an addiction. And the sheikh was saying to him, this is for Allah to teach you sabr, to teach you resiliency, to teach you persistence. Right? Addiction is a great teacher, believe it or not. Spiritually speaking, the Mashaikh talk when they talk about addiction, it's a teacher. It will teach you the meaning of patience. It will teach you the actual meaning of persistence, right? And it will teach you the meaning of true faith, true belief that you go a decade and a second decade failing, getting up. You're going to have kids one day. You're going to have to be patient with them. They're going to mess up for 10 years, for 20 years, have some. It's so fascinating. That the, even the secular approach to addiction is humbling yourself. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and belief in the higher power was actually, before they recently just put some movement to take that out, but belief in a higher power is one of the tenets of AA. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of what addiction is, is our, our desire for control and our desire to quickly mm. fix things. When in reality, Control, control and and hurriedness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's it. And Allah is telling you that's not happening. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's telling you, in order to do this, you in order to live this life and do what you want to do, you have to know someone else is in charge. Absolutely. It's going at his rate, not your rate. SubhanAllah. And the dick and, and to have that's why um, Ibn Atat when he was asked, Why do believers still sin? He said, Then there is something wrong in his relationship with Allah. It's merely a reflection that there's something wrong. And what is it wrong? You want to control what is in Allah's control. You want to move things along when Allah does not want to move things along. Right? So you're wrestling something that belongs to Allah. So that's one of the signs of sinfulness. But like you said, addiction is a major thing. And one of the, the, the youth and the shabab, no one likes to talk about it. And, and it's, it is a shameful topic. But... Uh, it is ubiquitous right now. It's like an epidemic, which is the addiction of looking at illicit imagery and pornography to, to Shabbat. But uh, that's something that they should also realize. It's a habit that if it grew into you, it's going to grow out. Right? It's not something that is part of life. It's something that it's triggered by something. And maybe one thing in life is bothering you. This is manifested through that. And it could be at the, at some level just temptation. You're a man, right? And and women have it too, right? So there are all these elements combined. Okay, but what I believe is that 
healthy all-around wellness, wellness of Iman, wellness of belief, like Qudra and all these things, social wellness, physical wellness, uh, sleep wellness, all of that, I believe, really, whatever the addictions that people have, over the years, it's going to take years, you're going to be well-balanced. You're going to have a well-balanced human being where he's physically, emotionally, socially, all that. Over years, he's covered these bases, like 85%. And then these addictions should slowly just disappear. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, whoever mixes the good deed with the bad deed, like he's balanced. Every time he does a bad deed, he does a good thing, right? He tries to improve. Then eventually Allah ta'ala will have mercy on him, right? Those who mix up these good and bad. So every time he does bad, he does good. Then eventually Allah ta'ala will have mercy on him. Allah will take care of everything. If you have persisted and believed, why? Because you persisted and believed. You persisted to believe that Allah is capable, Allah will answer that prayer, right? So that will come around, it's gonna take time. Uh, what else do you have for us? Anything else besides this issue of addiction? Um, I think you basically covered everything. I think when you talk about the idea of control, that also speaks to anxiety. People, oftentimes people feel anxious because they want to get have a sense of control and, and it's a, sense of control. We have Tesla. Yeah. That, that's what it speaks to is that in reality and we tell we tell this to a lot of patients with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is that why do you need the control? And I don't want them to answer that question. I want them to just think about it yeah. for weeks. Why do we need the control? What are some of the reasons people need control? It's this false sense of uh, uh, I think sometimes it involves uh, not having trust, not having trust in themselves, not having trust in the people around them, and the, this over indulgence of control makes them feel better. Uh, it's a false sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's never something we never had. In reality, we, we don't have any control. And that's what I tell patients is that uh, get comfortable with that idea. That not, don't have control, and that's okay. SubhanAllah, they, they liken the people who want to control the future uh, and know the future as someone who's peeking into Allah's property or the one who wants to control it, let, let alone know it. I mean, know it is one thing, but control it is as if someone's wrestling the property of Allah away from him. You know, the future is totally, that's why uh, the funniest thing is uh, like analysts, you see if I have no clue. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can, there are patterns. You can state the pattern, right? Mm -hmm. And you can state that certain things are found in certain other things, certain mm -hmm. attributes are found in certain things, and that the general pattern is this. You cannot state, no one knows the few, I mean, every it's like year. The yeah, it's like every year, every era, every lifetime, something surprises us, right? We're surprised by something. That's amazing that we never thought would happen. And if, if that didn't happen, life wouldn't be life. So the fact that Allah has taken the future away from us, the control of the future, uh, he's taken that away from us is for our own benefit so that we can enjoy life. Otherwise, it would be predictable. All right, so-and-so has these factors. All right, he's going to be the best in his field. It turns out to be, uh, I always uh, I recently saw a thing about uh, drafting, right, that the the idea of the number one draft, right, of the year. You know how many times they're successful? It's like minuscule. The, the, the times where the number one pick is the best player of his generation, 
or of his class at least, it's like like less than 12% of the time, right? So number one draft picks are not even in the, using the top five of their sport. And they're having how many eyeballs on them, right? Studying this stuff and they have computers and data and all this stuff. So you just can't predict stuff. So I really thank you for having, uh, for, for coming and for doing this. Do you ever think of uh, sharing your medical knowledge on things like Twitter and stuff? Because I think that sharing knowledge uh, of that stuff, this stuff would be valuable for people. I think Twitter and stuff is stupid for personal use, but when it's actually sharing knowledge, I think it's useful. Um, it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I'll yeah. I'm like, a big Twitter person, to be honest. All, all these platforms can be stupid, but whenever you're sharing knowledge, that's objective knowledge, it's all very beneficial, right? That's what I found. I found all these, and, and you know, like hanging out is to me, hanging out is a waste of time with people. I consider it a total waste of time. But when there's a function of the hang for purpose, and there's something that you're sharing, it becomes great, right? So the virtual world is no different. I feel that like the virtual world is just a waste of time unless you have something good to offer and you as a psychiatrist there's a lot of this stuff is good to offer absolutely and and when people ask you questions back it makes you come up with more answers you know? that's why i think that a podcast like this is incredible I think, and, and, I, and i really appreciate it to you for giving me the opportunity to share this information with your audience so that we can have like a, a discussion yeah uh, about this and beneficial no it was and and it's all about having something beneficial for people to say uh, some, some beneficial to say something useful to say a lot of stuff out there is just for the sake of it and that to me is just completely bores me it's got to be something useful and deep for people to think about and and change our lives and and to do this until we go to the grave or retire right and then someone else will carry the baton of trying to help people but this is the best thing to best type of work and, and, and doctors and teachers are very similar in that respect that they, they want to help people. Um, uh, you know, they want to see people change. The right? origin of the word for doctor is actually embedded in teacher. Oh, really? I didn't know that. A good doctor is a good teacher. SubhanAllah. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for coming on. Jazakallah khairan subhanakallah humma wa bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk wa nasr illa al-insana la fi khusr illa al-ladhina amanu wa amilu salihatu wa tawasubu al-haq wa tawasubu al-sabri wa salamu alaykum.